Hear the word of the Lord. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's begin our time in prayer. Lord in heaven, thank you that we have arrived at the resurrection. I thank you, Lord, that you have shown us that Jesus is the Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown us the significance of the cross. And now we we look in and examine the empty tomb. Would you continue to teach us, Lord? Help us to trust you. Help us to see your great plan, your redemption here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the resurrection is interesting because we preach the resurrection every year, right? We, we as Christians uh, who observe Easter, uh, the, the, the day of the risen Lord, um, we always have this uh, a resurrection sermon of some sort. Of course, as Christians, we, we, we gather on Sundays because it's the Lord's day because of the resurrection. And so it's not just Easter morning that we hear about the resurrection. It comes up often. Uh, last summer, for instance, we, we examined the resurrection as we were walking our, through the Apostles' Creed. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And if you would like to go back and listen to that, you can, because in that sermon, we examined why the resurrection is important to Christians, and what the significance is, what it means for us. Uh, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that, because that's not what today's sermon is going to be about. So if, if, if this is a new subject for you, August 15th or somewhere thereabouts, or you can just go to dcbc.org 
and in the search column, just put third day, and it'll take you right to that sermon. You could listen to that. But there's something remarkable about this passage, though. Something about Matthew's unique telling of the story that has just, I haven't been able to shake this week. Something that's been bugging me as I've studied this. No matter where I went with, with the text, no matter how I outlined the text and studied it and, and tried to get to some points that I know are really important, I couldn't shake how unexpectedly ordinary this account is. Especially, think about it, given the significance of the resurrection. Our Lord and Savior was crucified, dead and buried and then he was raised. That's a big deal. As we read the rest of the New Testament, the resurrection comes up over and over and over again. When you read the book of Acts, as we've been studying Acts in Sunday school, and you see the apostles go out to proclaim the resurrection, in every single sermon they preach, whether they're preaching to Jews or Gentiles, the resurrection is the definitive declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as you, as you read the, the, the letters of the New Testament, you see phrases like immeasurable greatness and power and might, all to describe the resurrection. Death no longer has dominion because of the resurrection. We have an, in, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading because of the resurrection. Jesus was vindicated by the resurrection. The resurrection is the basis on which we say, just like we have been looking at Romans 8 in our confession, it's the basis on which we say we are more than conquerors. And it's because of the resurrection that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. The resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. Christ has not been raised, but we are to be pitied. We are the most to be pitied. The resurrection is in our creeds. It is in our hymns. We arrange our work week around it. This is the event on which our hope and faith stands. And yet, as we read this account in Matthew, the resurrection seems like an afterthought. Did you notice that as we read it? So, so here's what we're going to do this morning as we approach this text. I'm going to divide it up roughly into, into two sections. The first section is this. The resurrection on the third day is assumed in this text. And you'll see what I mean by that. And, and then secondly, the resurrection on the third day is expected. That's it. The, the resurrection is assumed. Why? Because the resurrection was expected. And we confessed that, didn't we? We expect the resurrection of the dead. So first, the resurrection on the third day is assumed. And I realize this is kind of a strange way to approach the text. I want you to bear with me. This is the probably, probably the first time that I've ever based an entire sermon on what the text doesn't say <laughs> as compared to what it does say. 
All right, how is it expositional preaching if you're only pointing to the absence of something in the text? But you'll see what I'm doing as we move through this. So, so why do I say that the resurrection is assumed in our text? Well, just as a comparison, just to, to look at the way that Matthew has talked about the death of Christ versus the resurrection of Christ, 141 verses are written to describe the events leading up to and surrounding Jesus' death. 141 verses. 15 describe the resurrection. And these verses, these 15 verses, aren't even really about the event, are they? They're more about the reaction to the event and the aftermath of the resurrection. The tomb is empty. The women believe, and they're given this urgent message from the angel, and then, and then they're given the same message from Jesus, go and tell the disciples. And then the soldiers, well, I don't know what they think happened. says they gave an account, but I don't know exactly what they said. But I do know this, the fact that the priests have to pay them to spread the council's message tells me that they know that what they're telling everyone is a lie. They know that it's someone else's message. It's, it's not their own. And that's really what those 15 verses are about. The story of the women, the story of the soldiers. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But the resurrection in this text is assumed. There's no description of it, is there? If you were to see a description of the resurrection, imagine with me, it might look something like this, and and in the darkness and the void of the tomb, the spirit went in and hovered over Jesus. Suddenly the Son of God opened wide his eyes and breathed in deeply the first breath of the new creation. And he sat up and the linen cloths fell off of him. And he neatly folded the head cloth in a square and set it on the bench. And about that time an angel appeared carrying with him a fresh tunic, which he gave to Jesus. And as Jesus dressed himself, he and the angel spoke about what was to come next. And when they finished speaking to one another, Jesus walked through the stone and set out to find some breakfast, for he was hungry. And that, that would kind of be it. That's what you look for when you're looking for the resurrection. But there are no details here, are there? In fact, the, the Bible's lack of detail about the, the resurrection event so bothered some people early in the second century, that someone, we don't know who the guy was, but someone wrote his own version, kind of like mine, which was obviously fabricated. But this guy wrote a follow-up account to to the inspired Gospels, and he titled his story The Gospel of Peter, even though it wasn't the Gospel and it wasn't written by Peter. And in that made-up account, you're understanding this is made up, this isn't the Bible, okay? In that made-up account, This person said that in the night, the two angels came down from heaven to Jesus in the tomb, and they went into the tomb while it was still dark early on Sunday morning, and they woke Jesus up by asking him if he had finished his mission yet. And then off the three of them went together out of the tomb. And interestingly, in the made-up account, the false one, Jesus was still carrying a cross. Kind of odd. That story isn't in the Bible for lots of reasons. Most importantly, it's not a true story, but it shows you that, that people have observed for a long time that 
the resurrection is assumed, and there's this desire to fill in the blanks. Just look, as we, as we think about the assumption of the resurrection, look at the assignment that the angel in our text is given. So we are going to look at the text. The, 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 the angel's job is to just show up when the women arrive and open the tomb to show them that, of course, it's empty, and then send them on their way to tell the disciples where to find Jesus. And really, he simply tells them to tell the disciples where Jesus has already told them to go. Look at what the angel says when he greets the women. Look at Matthew uh, 28, 5 through 7. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Don't miss that. He's not here, as he said. In other words, he told you he wouldn't be here. He said he would rise, and he's not here. See, look, empty tomb. And we'll come back to that statement in a moment where the angel continues, come see the place where you lay, then go quickly. Look and go. Go quickly, tell his disciples he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. The tone is really matter-of-fact, isn't it? Go look at the tomb. Do what you need to do to assure yourself that he's not there, but don't waste your time looking in the empty tomb. You should already know. It's empty. So get on, get going. You've got to get to Galilee. Where's the focus of the text? It's not on the tomb. The tomb is empty. It's assumed that Jesus rose from the dead. The impetus is on the message, isn't it? That's important. That's really important to, to, to Matthew 28. The tomb is empty. The message is full. And you see that the message and the mission is the focus here because Matthew doesn't even tell us that the women looked in the tomb. Look at verse 8. After that, the angel tells them these things, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. I love the way that Matthew describes this. Fear and great joy. And in obedience to the angel's command, a command that comes from the Lord. He's a messenger of the Lord. They run to spread the message. You see where the emphasis is? It's not on the empty tomb. It's on the message. And we see that assumption there, don't we? The tomb's empty. We know it's empty. Go tell everyone. In the next verse, we see more of the assumed resurrection. Notice the way that Jesus greets the women in verse 9. Now, now just remember, in case you've forgotten, this is the first time anyone sees the risen Lord. Right? This is an important moment. This is the moment these women have been anticipating as they're running away from, from the tomb. Look what Matthew says, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Now, that word that we translate greetings, we translate that way because it, it, greetings is the most ge generic English greeting there is. And, and the translation fits the context. When Jesus said this in the original language, the word he used was literally the most common and ordinary and expected form of greeting in that day. It was the hello. 
bonjour, buenos dias of the first century. And it's not very profound, is it? It's ordinary. The Savior of the world is raised from the dead. He has defeated his greatest enemy and our greatest enemy. And he's freed us from bondage to sin. The new creation has dawned. And he says, hello. This is the most understated greeting in the history of the world. That's what I mean by the ordinariness of the resurrection account. It's all very ordinary because the resurrection is assumed. And some of you, okay, maybe you're pushing back. What about that angel and the earthquake and the lightning face and stuff? Okay, yes, there's an angel. That's not ordinary. And yes, there's an earthquake when he shows up. And yes, his face looks like lightning. Yes, the soldiers are knocked out by the wonder of it all. I'm not, I'm not discounting that. That's, that is amazing. It's actually really amazing. The only time, just as a side note here, the only time that a lightning-faced angel has ever appeared in the Bible was in Daniel chapter 10. And in, in Daniel 10, the angel was revealing to Daniel the future of the empires that would rule the earth. And more importantly, the angel, the lightning-faced angel, was revealing to Daniel Israel's return from exile and how that would come about and how God would send this Savior. There's definitely something to that. Something interesting is happening when this similar-looking angel shows up to these women to tell the news of the resurrection. But, but, but notice, that's a different subject. The angel's appearance is what brings the earthquake. The angel is what brings the stunned soldiers. It's not the resurrection. The resurrection has already happened. You see that in the text? The resurrection has already happened when the angel arrives. The resurrection is assumed. So the question then, hopefully you see now what my quandary was this week. Why? Why, why is it written this way so that it just, the resurrection, the greatest event in, in the history of, of the universe is just like already assumed? Why does Matthew write it this way? Well, I think, I know, it's because the resurrection was expected. And that's our second point today. The resurrection on the third day was expected. And we saw that in the angel's words to the women there at the tomb. He's not here. He has risen as he said. The reason the resurrection is assumed in the text is because Jesus has said it would happen. And he did say that it would happen lots of times. He said it on numerous occasions beginning way back in chapter 12 of Matthew. In, in, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is is condemning the scribes and Pharisees because of their unbelief. They're, they're constantly looking for a sign, and he says there will be a sign. It will be the sign of Jonah. Look at Matthew 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be. That's Jesus speaking of himself. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the implication there, you don't have to read too much in between the lines, Jonah was brought out of the fish. Son of man's going to be brought out of the ground. When? On the third day. 
Jesus says something similar in Matthew 16. This is the first really direct teaching that Jesus gave the disciples. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Chapter 17, he says it two times. Uh, on the way down, they're, they're, they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus revealed, the, the glory of Christ is revealed. And they're coming down in, in 17.9. As they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And then a few days later, verses 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and he will be raised. On the third day. Then it happens again in chapter 20. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And all of that stuff happened, didn't it? And he'll be raised on the third day. Then chapter 26. This is just a few nights ago, according to the Passion Week calendar. Would have been Thursday night. They're heading away from the upper room where they had had their last supper. They're going towards the garden. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And that happened too, didn't it? Everything Jesus said would happen, happened. But look, look at verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Look at the syntax of that. After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So even when Jesus is heading to the garden to pray and then be arrested, and he knows he's going to suffer on the cross, and we, we, we studied that, even then, the resurrection is so expected that it's an afterthought. It's like he's saying, I'm going to die, and of course I'm going to be raised, but what's important tonight is that you know where to meet me. You see that? This is like, just thinking about the expectation of it. If I, if I said I'm, I'm flying on a plane and going to, to Australia, but my plane's going to crash and I'm going to get eaten by sharks, but I want you to meet me in Honolulu. It, you would, it just kind of sounds strange, doesn't it? The, the, the resurrection is assumed. There, there's almost zero suspense about the matter. There's, there's no doubt for you and I as we read the book and we finally get to chapter 28. We, we're kind of surprised that there's not a lot of details about the resurrection. But we have known all along that Jesus will be raised. Jesus said he would be raised on the third day. And he said it many times. And everything else Jesus has predicted has come true exactly as he said it would. Therefore, his resurrection we would expect, is also a foregone conclusion. But there's more than that here. Sort of a second point to the expectation. So if you're taking notes, that first point would be that Jesus said he would be raised. That's why we expect it. Second one, though, this is where we're going to spend just the rest of our time. The Bible itself, God's word as a whole, has been anticipating the resurrection of Messiah, as much as it has been anticipating 
the arrival of Messiah. And we've seen that as we've studied Matthew. In the first 27 chapters of Matthew, we've seen that Jesus is Messiah because he fulfills all the scriptures. He fulfills all the promises of God. And now as we've gotten to the cross, that fulfillment stuff has become even more pronounced, hasn't it? Every single detail beginning in chapter 26, every detail from Jesus' arrest to the disciples fleeing from him to the conspiracy against Jesus by the priest, the hanging of Jesus on, on on a wooden cross at the hands of the Romans, the things that Jesus even said on the cross, the sour wine given to him, the earthquake, the rock splitting, the dead people coming out of the graves, the rich man burying Jesus in his own tomb, all of that. Every single detail was all in fulfillment of scriptures. And more than that, the scriptures that were being fulfilled showed us the significance of what was occurring. And that's that's important. It's not just that there was a prophecy and then it happened. Jesus fulfilled not just individual prophecies, he fulfilled types. He fulfilled the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Why? To show us that he had taken on Israel's sin. And he fulfilled Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, showing us that by taking Israel's guilt on himself, he was preparing the way for Israel's return from exile. And more than that, we saw this, humanity's return to the Lord, our return to the Lord. And in bringing his people out of exile, there was that promise. If that was happening, well, then the new covenant was coming. It would be better than the old covenant. In the cross, all of the promises of God have been fulfilled. They're beginning to be fulfilled. And that's why Paul says, this is the heart of the gospel. Just skipping ahead to 1 Corinthians, we've looked at this verse a million times. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And we saw that. But it's not just the cross. It's also the resurrection that fulfills God's promises. Verse 4, he says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And we've seen all of the scriptures. We've seen God attesting to the coming Messiah who would die for his people. What scriptures exactly told of the coming resurrection on the third day? Those are kind of hard to find. If you look for that, you're not going to find a verse that says, and the Messiah will be raised on the third day. It's just just not there. You have to read the Bible in types. You have to see Jesus fulfilling the, the... Promises that were given to Israel in order to see the significance of this. We've already seen that connection to Jonah. Jesus showed us the connection to Jonah. There's a couple other areas that I want to look at before we finish this text. The first is in Exodus 19 that John read for us. Exodus 19 comes at an interesting time for Israel. It's three months after they've been redeemed in a powerful way by the, by the mighty hand of God. They've been redeemed from slavery from Egypt. God says, I love the way he says in Exodus 19, that he had borne them on eagle's wings. 
and brought them to himself. They've been redeemed. They have made a covenant with the Lord already. They've they've promised to, to, to be his, and yet they haven't met him. And, and they've made their way into the, into the wilderness of Sinai, and they're at the, at the foot of this great mountain that gives the wilderness its name. They're at Mount Sinai, God's holy mountain. And this is where God is going to reveal himself to, to them. This is where God is going to finalize his work in redeeming them. And they will know for certain that they're his people, and he's their God. Look what God says in verses 10 through 11 of Exodus 19, and I'll put it up here on the screen for you. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. The Lord is going to come down and meet the people on the third day. He's already redeemed them. I was going to finish the work. He's going to complete his work when? On the third day. And that's what he does. Verses 16 and 17. On the morning of the third day. When? Morning time. Third day. On the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. God came just as he said he would on the third day. Now we've already seen, haven't we, that that, that the cross is the new and better exodus. That the cross, not the exodus, would be the the time when we look back to see God's faithfulness. We've already seen that at at the cross, God was redeeming us not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And at the cross, Christ is atoning for our sin. He's making us clean. Interesting, isn't it, that in Exodus 19, the people had to clean themselves. And here in the new and better covenant, Christ cleanses us by his death. And note note also that in, in the old covenant, the people could not approach the Lord. Seeing the Lord simply meant seeing his power. They couldn't approach him. They couldn't touch the foot of the mountain. They had to stand at the foot of the mountain. But in the new covenant, we're seeing here, Christ fulfilling the old, bringing the new. Jesus the Lord comes on the third day and greets the women. Very simple, normal greeting. What do they do? They bow down at his feet. And they touch his feet. Because they've been made clean. Their sins are forgiven. There's no condemnation now. There's no trembling now, is there? They can approach the Lord with confidence. And there we could just spend days looking at the comparisons there in, in, in Exodus 19 and what's happening here. But just here's what I want you to see. Just as God completed 
that first work of redemption, redeeming his people, by coming down on the third day, Jesus, the Son of God, completes his work of redemption by coming up on the third day. He rose on the third day in accordance with scriptures. God raised him up. God completed what God began. Because he always does. Just one more passage I want us to look at. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea, if you want to turn there, you can. I don't have the page number for you. But it's one of the shorter books of prophecy. So we call it one of the minor prophets. Hosea is about kind of a sad book. In a lot of ways, it's about Israel breaking that covenant with God that they had made with him. That, That covenant that had begun in their redemption in Sinai. Well, people broke it. Israel violated their covenant with the Lord by worshiping other gods. And throughout Hosea, you see this analogy of the marriage covenant. Israel has committed adultery. She's turned away from her her husband. And in Hosea, there is judgment coming for God's people because they broke the covenant. And Hosea chapter 5 is all about that judgment that Israel receives. Now remember, when we were studying the cross together, we, we saw Jesus stood in the place of Israel, and he received that judgment, didn't he? He is the stand-in because he is Israel's Messiah. So now look at what Hosea 6 says, verses 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Why is the resurrection expected? Because the Bible said, expect it. The one who would stand in place of Israel and receive her judgment is also the one who was raised up on the third day. The one who receives the punishment of Hosea chapter 5 is the one who receives the resurrection of Hosea chapter 6. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Why is this an expectation? Look at verse 3. Because it is a sure thing. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. As sure as the sun rises at dawn, as sure as the rains in the springtime, it is that sure that the Lord will complete his work. That reference has been hinted at by Matthew, hasn't it? When do Mary and Mary go to the tomb? 28 verse 1. The dawn of the first day of the week. What happens at the dawn? The sun surely rises. The resurrection is assumed. It is expected. Because God has proven himself again and again to be faithful. He's faithful to his promises. Why 
Just asking it another way. Why would we expect God to stop halfway through this, this great work of redemption that reveals His glory more than anything else ever has? This has been the plan from before time began. We should expect it. It wouldn't make any sense for God to do less than raise His Son. That's not who God is. God does what God says He will do. So the resurrection seems so mundane and ordinary, so expected, because it is in the nature and character of God to finish what He started. As surely as the sun rises, God completes His work. If you aren't quite there yet, I'll give you two analogies. Okay? Think of it like this. It's, it's like if, if Usain Bolt as a birthday present for Vern. Suppose Mr. Bolt were to race Mr. Jumper in a 100-meter dash. Now, Vern is full of surprises. But would you really have to watch the end? Don't you know what would happen? Don't you expect it? Or, or here's your, your obligatory week late Super Bowl illustration. If I were to take a football, and I'm not good at football, I am not full of surprises here, and if I were to try to run past Aaron Donald, you don't have to see the video, do you? You might enjoy it, <laughs> but you don't have to watch the video. You know what happens. Not be, there's no suspense. Each of those events would have a foregone conclusion because of the strength of the people involved. So it is with the resurrection. The tomb is empty. Of course it is. Of course Jesus isn't there. Of course he's been raised. What else were we expecting? There was no other possible outcome. God showed us at the cross he has already begun to, re- begun to redeem his people. He's already begun his great work of making all things new. And God always finishes what he started. It's who he is. And because God is who he is, the resurrection was not a maybe. It wasn't a possibility. It was a must. It was a necessity. That's what Matthew's been showing us. And it's not just Matthew. This is, this is the New Testament message. In Luke's account, we get the same thing. They go to the tomb, they find the angel, and look how Luke puts it. Luke 24, 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Kind of a, uh, puts that in kind of a mean way. <laughs> He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man Big word here, must be delivered into the hands of sinful man. And he must be crucified. And on the third day, he must rise. The Son of Man must endure these things because God is faithful. And he said these things would happen. So why would we not expect the resurrection? That's the message of the gospel, friend. That's why the resurrection story is told the way that it is. God, in his wisdom, 
in writing this story through all of his apostles was reminding us of his faithfulness. We should always expect God to complete his work. And we should so expect God to complete his work that the resurrection would be a foregone conclusion for us. As Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen. In other words, blessed are those who expected this and have believed. Brothers and sisters, expect God to complete his work. Not just in the exodus, not just at the cross and the empty tomb, but in your life too. If God has begun to work salvation in you, he will complete it. Not by your strength, not by your power, but because he's God. And he finishes what he started. So if God has begun to save you, first of all by sending his son to die for you, and then by sending the spirit to give you faith, he'll complete the work. So if you are if you're right now, if you're fighting against doubt and you're despairing that oh, I might not be saved because I have this question. Or if you're fighting against doubt because you fear death more than you should. Be at peace. Just be still. Know that God will finish what he started in you. He's already defeated death. You don't need to fear death. And in your doubt, seek him in his word. See his faithfulness. Be reminded of his faithfulness again and again. And know he's always been faithful in the past. And he will always be faithful in the future. Expect the resurrection from the dead as we confess together. Expect it. If if you're fighting against sin, and you feel like because of your struggle against sin, you might not be a Christian. Do not fear. Have great joy. Because what God began in you, He will complete. At the cross, Christ has defeated the power that sin has over you. And he has raised, he's been raised up to show you that you have also been raised with him. You are a new creation in him. And he will complete your salvation. Expect it. Expect the resurrection from the dead. Lastly, I know some of you aren't saved and doubting, or saved and struggling, some of you simply aren't saved. You have not known the risen Lord. You do not believe. Know this. God has brought you here. He's spoken to you by his word. He's shown you his faithfulness in his word. He has announced to you the forgiveness of your sins at the cross. He has shown you that Redemption has continued in the resurrecting of the Messiah. Expect to see God continue to work in you. Expect it. And so repent and believe. 
and expect to see him continue to work in you. God is faithful. God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we confess together as your people with joy, we confess that on the third day Christ arose in accordance with the scriptures. And Lord, as your people together, we confess that we look forward to the resurrection from the dead. We expect the resurrection from the dead because you always finish what you started. You are faithful, Lord, more than we are. So Lord, I do pray this morning for those who are struggling against sin, against doubt, against fear. You renew their faith. Remind them of your faithfulness. Teach them, Lord, through your love for them, to lean on you, to look to your faithfulness, be strengthened according to your faithfulness, and give them joy in their salvation, Lord. Lord, for those who need to repent and believe and have seen Christ's work here clearly in your word, would you give them faith? Be glorified in our church, Lord. Ask this in Christ's name.